When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. What are the options markets trying to tell us? With me today is Imran Laka, founder of CEO of Options Insight. No better person to try to answer that. Hi, Imran. Hey, Maggie. Lovely to meet you finally. Yes, and I'm so excited to have you in the co-pilot seat today. So Hmm. I, I think that it's fair to say at the very start that the options market can be intimidating for some people, but you have this amazing eight-part trading course that's live right now on our website where you really break it down and walk us through how this market works, the jargon, you know, what it all means. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's so, so helpful. Um, but but why, why is this important? Why should this be a part of people's toolbox? Why, why do we understand? How does it help us invest, understanding what's sure. happening in options? Sure, sure. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of sophisticated users of options in the market, right? And just like with everything in the market, there are various ways to break down the price action and what's going on under the hood. People look at breadth, people look at momentum, various things, positioning. This is just another way of doing that and kind of homing in on the the kind of sophisticated end of the market who uses options from a hedging standpoint or from a speculating standpoint. And and it just gives you a bit of a read on what some of those players are thinking and doing, which can sometimes help guide your own thinking about the market, right? So you might be bullish or bearish, but the options market is diverging from that and and seeing opposite things going on. The flows that are going going on in options might be the opposite or they might confirm it. So it's just very useful to know that. Uh, and then one other thing that is very important about it is it, it gives you a feel for time horizons. It gives you a feel for risk premium looking out in the future. So people might be very sanguine for the next month or two, but they might be applying a massive risk premium for some meeting coming up in three months time or some election and things like that. And you can you can price that and see what that the market is actually anticipating of those events in the future and then decide whether you agree or disagree uh, and there'll be opportunities to trade options around that. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was so interesting. When you, when you were in the in the introduction, you sit down with Roger and go over some stuff. And as I was listening to it, I thought, wow, it's sort of like 3D glasses, you know, that there's there's things happening in the market that some of us can't see and others can. And, you know, I think we all want that advantage, even if we're not actually trading them, at least understand what the conversation's about. So I, I'm super excited about that. So um, it, we're going to take a look at, at today's action and walk through, through some of the themes that seem like they're dominating. Um, and you can sort of, I think, help illustrate that a little bit. Uh, if you have any questions as we're doing that, uh, I just want to say at the start, uh, 
put, you know what to do, put them in the live chat, the YouTube chat, or you can tweet us out real vision and we'll get to as many as we can. So it, it, today's action was interesting, wasn't it? Imran, we, we saw we stocks have been rallying everyone's and not only stocks, but tech stocks, no less that have been so beaten down three day rally. We come in today, it's selling off, but it's kind of turned around and, and, you know, clawed back a lot of the losses we saw People were talking about earnings. Some of them were looking at Microsoft. What were you seeing from your vantage point? Yeah, so so it does seem that you know investors came in pretty a bit underweight still this year. Obviously, last year was a tough one. Um, those people who didn't really see the China reopening story coming would have been a bit underweight, and I think that's starting to get addressed. Uh, you know, we've seen a fair amount of short covering taking place, particularly in tech, um, and that's kind of been driving this move. But we're at this kind of key inflection point just or, or just above that 4,000 area in S&P, which everyone's looking at this like downtrend that's been in place for a while and saying, are we going to break this level or not? And it's still yet to really be fully confirmed. Um, that price action in Microsoft, yeah, was was not uh, not amazing. You know, they knee-jerked higher on better EPS and then rolled over on guidance. And, and that may well be the sort of price action we see in a lot of these names over the next couple of weeks, right, where you know, expectations of EPS have probably been coming down quite a bit. Um, therefore, the hurdle to beat that maybe isn't as bad. But how are you going to have good guidance going forward, really, over the next couple of quarters, right? So I, th I think, uh, like, Tesla is a big one that's bounced pretty strongly off that 100 level. People are probably now starting to get puffed into to the upside of this thing now. Um, so it may well be a big, big flop today, a big disappointment after close. I don't know if the numbers are out yet. I'm guessing. Yeah, we're, we're keeping an eye on it. It doesn't look like they are yet, but uh, between all of us, we'll try to catch it if it does come out. And it'll be interesting to see what it does um, in, in the in after hours, especially because that is a that's a stock that has a lot of action around it all the time, doesn't it? It's got ridiculous option volumes as well. It's like the most heavily traded stock in terms of option turnover out of the, out of every stock. I mean, it That's just tells incredible. you that Why there's so that? many punters. Because there's just so many punters who want to speculate options in that name, right? It's been the retail favorite for so long. And we know retail love using short-dated options as well on top of that. And now, now institutions are getting in on the act as well, right? So it's just... Uh, it, you bring up a really interesting point that I hadn't that hadn't re really even occurred to me yet, but there is a lot more retail participation in options, isn't there? Ha has that changed the dynamic of the market? Oh, but very much so. Over the last few years, you know, the retail have really risen through through the ranks in terms of how much they use optionality. Uh, and, and I always say, you know, retail money. People they used to call retail money dumb money. Yeah. But I almost I would say now it's just brave money. Right. The thing about retail is these guys, a lot of them use one, one week or maybe even one or two day options a lot of the time. And they don't mind losing all the premium in one go. Right. They, they've made peace with that. And maybe they're not spending a ton of premium when they do it. A, a grand here, a grand there. But the thing is, if loads of people are doing that at the same time, then it starts to really impact the market. Right. And, and it puts yeah. dealers into short positions, which then to some extent become a bit for self-fulfilling when the move happens. That's that's interesting. I, I I always it annoys me when people call retail money dumb money. Whatever we're talking about, um, it just it, it it just doesn't seem accurate. But I like calling it brave money um, and the idea that they're they're much more willing to take a punt. If in some ways maybe feel like they have nothing to lose or that's just what they're in it for. Um, so that that's been a really interesting development. So. 
when you're looking at just to go back to the broader market, so people came in, um, they were overly bearish, and so they had to cover their shorts, maybe helping drive some of the gains we've seen. How does it feel like the market's positioned now? So, um, you know, I, th I think this is where the option market helps, right? So, so last year, we saw skew flatten pretty dramatically, okay? And skew is the difference in volatility between downside puts and upside calls. So, so typically, there's a structural bid for optionality, bid for downside protection, and a lot of people sell upside to fund that protection to get some premium back, right? And that's the structural flow that's always in the market, especially when people are invested in the market. Thing about last year is that because we were dripping lower and the story was clear that we were in a bear market, you know, people didn't need that protection anymore because they were just more underweight than normal. Mm -hmm. And so if anything, they needed protection to the upside, which is why we saw skew flatten. It didn't quite flip because the skew to flip in equities is, is a pretty rare and pretty dramatic thing to happen. And it can happen in single stocks, but it doesn't really ever tend to happen in index, particularly developed world index. But we did see it flatten. Um, and then it kind of bottomed out. And as we saw at the start of this year, as money's getting put back to work and the market's rallying, then SKU's starting to catch a bit of a bid again. Nothing too dramatic. It's still pretty close to the lows. But it is interesting to see that money's being put back to work. And as people do add length to equities, it makes sense that they buy some puts against it and they buy some protection. And they're also more willing to sell the upside. Yeah. So it's so if they're buying that protection, it, would you read that as there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of which way the market will go? So they just need to protect themselves or are they making a more directed bet? No, it's just quite a formulaic thing, right? Like a lot, a lot of these institutions need to have a, a decent risk adjusted risk profile right, in their portfolio. So, you know, if you're going to add exposure to equities, you don't it can't necessarily be naked exposure, right? So you need some sort of tail hedge, some sort of protection in the book to manage drawdowns. Whereas if you just don't own any equities and you're in cash or, or you're even short, then you just don't need any of those puts basically. So it's, it's more that need is always there if you're invested. It's when, when you're not invested that that need goes away and that demand drops. So Tesla is out. Um, if you see me looking around, that's what I'm looking at. And earnings, 119 versus 113 expected. Revenue, 24.32 billion versus 24.16 billion. I think it's a little early, though. We're probably going to see want to see some more details come out before people make a decision. We'll see where if we can get a, a pre-market trade on that um, in a minute. But when you know when we're when we're looking at the stock market now, so. What should people be looking for in terms of a good guide? Because we're heading into the FOMC. So are, would we expect to see a lot of positioning around that big event coming up? It's a good question. So, so I mean, something that's really taken off in the last few months is uh, zero DTE options. So that mm. is people trading literally the day of expiry. OK, and that's particularly blowing up on days when there's a major data point or, or an FOMC meeting or something like that. So like 45 percent of the volume in S&P options is one day options. It's, it's actually absurd. It's, we've never seen anything like it. Yeah, why um, is that happening? I, I went down a whole Twitter rabbit hole on this the other day. Um, and so what, what's going on? Why is that? So, why is that happening? So I think, you know, it started off generally it would be the more retail crowd that does that. Right. They get max leverage with the super short dated option, they've got a view, a very strong conviction view on that day for some reason, and they, maybe they chase the move, right? They wait for the, 
They wait for the date of print. They see how the market reacts to it. And then they chase it using these one day options in a hope to get leverage that the move continues and has some legs, right? Which is an understandable kind of plan, right? As what you might want to do as retail. The surprising thing is the volume explosion because Instos are now doing the same thing. And I think the reason Instos are doing the same thing is because a lot of them, is, again, it's the same thing, right? They've been underweight. They, they haven't really needed downside protection. And that downside protection, you know, when you need downside protection, you don't do it for one day. You want to have it for at least a few months, right? So that you're, you don't know when the sell offs going to happen, but you want to be protected and you don't want your, your protection to evaporate overnight, basically, right? The thing is, when you're underweight and you kind of know we're in a bear market structurally, but you have these major data points that could suddenly make the market rip 5% in a day, mm. that's your tail risk. So your tail risk is very known, right? It's known because there's a specific catalyst that will trigger it if it's going to happen. So therefore, you don't need to worry about one month call options. Mm. You just need a call option on the day of, because if that print comes in away from expectations, we all know what's going to happen, right? So I think that's the mentality institutions have had. And with the liquidity that's been there in the options market for them to trade ridiculous size on the one day, they've just said, you know what, this actually ends up working out cheaper for me than putting on systematic hedges that are longer dated and just bleeding time decay the whole time. So I think that's what's going on. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Is there a risk around this development, especially if it potentially wasn't intended for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a risk in that it can exaggerate moves on any given day, basically, right? If, if, mm -hmm. if some big flow comes in on a day and, and everyone wants to go in the same direction and, and dealers get taken out of billions of dollars notional of one-day options, you know, that's going to turn what would be a 3% move into a 5 6% move, basically, right? Like the, the, the whole gamma squeeze dynamic that was talked about when GameStop happened mm -hmm. and AMC and all that, that starts to then get, get translated to some level on the S&P, which sounds absurd, but we've seen it, right, on days where, where, where these zero DTEs have traded. So, yeah, that, that's what I think the risk is. That's interesting. So does that mean that we should take a big move on a given day with a grain of salt that it's not necessarily sustainable? Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think those those moves are probably opportunities to fade and play mm -hmm. mean reversion type trades. But you want to wait until maybe the end of the day to do that, because otherwise you, you'll get your face ripped off if you're too early. We, we don't we, we don't want that to happen. And there's been a lot of face ripping <laughs> mm, for sure. the, in 22. Uh, that's amazing. So as you can imagine, our chat is blowing up because of Tesla. And it seems like, um, again, let's let's you know, let's listen to the conference call, especially with the stock like Tesla. But the after hours, it seems like reaction is positive. I mean, 2.8 percent. I don't know. Tesla sometimes has big moves. So maybe there is a little bit of caution there. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what they say. Is there any positioning that you did ahead of that earnings call or that you interesting activity you saw going yeah. into that? 
Uh, I didn't analyze the activity in the market that much, but I did have a little position of my own that I kind of got out of most of it before the numbers. So, so uh, somebody when, when, said thinks you're bearish on Tesla all the time, has a bear bias. Is that true, Imran? Not always, no. But I actually bought Tesla uh, when it was at like one hundred between one hundred and one hundred and ten, um, and I bought it. So when was that? Kind of around around the New Year or just before, right? Christmas, New Year sort of time. Um, because it did look like every man and their dog was bearish Tesla. So it, it did seem like a smart contrarian play. You know, Brent Donnelly, who you get on the show sometimes, mm-hmm. he, he was also pretty vocal about doing that as a tactical trade. So I agreed with that. I did it via option. So I, I sold a put spread, a tight $5 wide put spread to then buy a, a wide call spread. I had the 150, 180 call spread on for February. Um, and that's done pretty well. I mean, I think I spent $1 for the whole structure and it, and it went, you know, decently. Uh, but I just... Up here at 140, 145, I was like, you know, the risk reward is just not there to stay long this thing. So I st- I kept a tiny bit of the position just in case the thing blows out to 180. Um, but I took 80% of the position off because it, it had done its job. The, the thesis had played out. And now I don't really have any real edge in predicting where the next move is. If And if anything, I suspect it's down, just similar to the, the logic around Microsoft and things like that. Uh, I, I expect that to be the sort of price action we may see in the tech names o- over the earnings season. Interesting. When even the dogs are in on it, then you know it's probably uh, time that you want to you want to at least take a, a tactical position in something too, right? I like I like that phrasing. So I wanted to uh, bring up another. So we talked a little bit about the Fed, and and the sentiment around the Fed. Very interesting. Uh, Andrea sat down with Marco Papich in the latest edition of a series we're doing called "Looking for the Upside." Right. So forget the doom. People who are out there who've got a bullish call on something and they're brave enough to chase it down. And Marcos is very much tied to politics, geopolitics, as you can imagine. Uh, and he was surprisingly constructive on the U.S. as well as emerging markets. Let's have a listen to that clip and then we'll talk on the other side. So as far as the U.S. is concerned, I actually don't think we get a recession. Uh, I think there's more upside in U.S. equities. Uh, and then I also think that uh, the real opportunities in 2023 will be outside of the U.S., whether that has to do with emerging markets, uh, Chinese equities, Chinese assets. Uh, Japan is probably going to be the best performing DM um, equity market. And then I think Europe could potentially be a really positive uh, for investors. But we, we still need a little bit more clarity on the geopolitical and energy cost front. And that full interview with Marco's explanations around his thesis, which you need to hear if you're going to decide whether you agree or not, is available on our website. You can click the QR code or Brian will drop a link in the chat. Um, Imran, interesting that he he was so bullish on Japan uh, as one of the developed markets he thinks is going to do best. And I know you've been looking at trades around Japan. How are you feeling about that? Yeah, so Japan's been a tricky one, right? Obviously, um, the big yields move has kind of um, helped dollar yen top out last year, come all the way down. We got a bit of acceleration uh, when the Bank of Japan kind of head faked everyone, right, and shifted their policy up and then and then ended up doing nothing on the next go. Uh, Western's obviously done a great job of narrating what's going on there. Um, so JGBs, yeah, I mean, they are a very, very tough short. Because, you know, it's just there seems to be endless appetite from the Bank of Japan to keep this going. But um, I guess the, 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 the trade that people are kind of gravitating towards is to be short dollar yen. Um, because if you believe that U.S. yields have topped, like a lot of people do with, with a recession coming, which is not what Marco's saying, but 
most people seem to have leading indicators telling them that a US recession is kind of nailed on. It's just a question of how deep it's going to be, mm. which is why you should own US treasuries. So if you do think 10-year continues lower, um, and then let's say JGB stay where they are because they're kind of stuck here in YCC, then in theory, dollar yen continues to track lower like it has been doing because of that yield differential, right? Um, so that's the trade people are going for. And the nice thing about that trade is you get the extra kicker that if you are short dollar yen and they do lift the cap, then it just drops five, 10 big figures quickly, basically. So, so it's like your way of expressing your view on yields going lower in the US, but with an extra kicker if they do finally let JGBs go, which we don't know if they will, but it's it, a lot of people do think at some stage when Corona goes out and the new person comes in, they're going to try and engineer some sort of exit from YCC. So the trade I'm looking at is some sort of option structure that sells volatility um, out to June because it's still quite elevated, but but a directional structure, right? So where you buy a, a call spread on, on the yen, so you can do it via like the yen ETF or something. So you buy a call spread on the yen and you fund it by selling a put on the yen and you do it at a level where you're comfortable, like for example, 140 on dollar yen, I suspect is going to be a pretty hefty resistance on, on, on dollar yen there. So that, that would be the equivalent put strike of what you would sell on the yen. So that's the type of trade that I'm looking at. Yeah, and, and, and it's important, isn't it? Time is a big element in this. Do you always have to have a, a time frame when you're thinking about this? 100%. I mean, options have got an expiry, right? So if you, they force you to have a view on time, right? Yeah. Because they, that is one of the parameters that you're trading, right? So generally, when the way I kind of like to think about it is if I express a directional view using options, I generally want to buy time. I generally want to park that expiry long dated enough that my view plays out, mm -hmm. right? The worst thing in the world is having a directional view, getting it right, but being, um, you know, running out of time on your options and, and, and you're basically not in the trade anymore. So that's, that's, that's what you want to try and avoid. And then when you're doing trades to kind of earn premium and earn time decay to, to earn income, maybe, then you want to keep the things relatively short dated so that you get your premium quickly, right? If you yeah. want to earn premium, there's no point in selling a one year option because it's going to take you a year to make that money, right? So selling a one month option is a much better idea because you'll get that money in a month. And, and also, you've got a better idea of what the landscape looks like for the next month than what the hell could happen in a year. Yeah, that's so useful. Oliver asking, do you use options to try to predict moves? Is pit, uh, sorry, is put slash call useful anymore? Yeah, so, so, so uh, look, it's not, it's just another one of those ingredients, basically, right? So I look at options pricing, I look at, i.e. implied vol versus realized vol. I, I call that carry in the way I look at things. So I look at, I look at volatility carry. Um, that gives me a sense for whether the dealers are long or short. It gives me also a sense of whether I want to be leaning net long or short options. Uh, I look at skew pricing to get a read on whether skew is pricing some super extreme tail that is now fully priced in, like peak panic. Or skew is diverging from market direction, which is a, an, an interesting indicator, right? So when you start to see spot going in one direction, but skew starting to move materially in the opposite direction, you're seeing that option players are doing the opposite of what the spot is doing. Is there a reason behind that? And, and that can sometimes be a leading indicator of some mm -hmm. kind. 
which is kind of the opposite of the peak panic phase where you're getting a market crashing, SKU's gone through the moon, and, and you know, you think SKU hasn't been here in like five years. It's too extreme. It's oversold. I'll fade it, basically, right? So th those are the ways to kind of use these metrics to kind of get a feel for what they're telling you. This is so interesting. This is why I was thinking, you know, as you were talking about it, just being sort of, you know, super laser focused glasses, just to have an, a sort of another line of sight on the market that you can layer on, you know, whatever thesis you're building. Because in a lot of the academy courses, we talk about how to build those building blocks that you want to check off when you've got a thesis that you want you want to sort of put some money to work on. Um, I, I'm laughing because um, Ralph is saying uh, we're talking about the upside because, of course, they're rolling out and he's saying he has a new show idea looking for the downside there's always a bear market somewhere i think we've been accused of that a little bit ralph we're, we're trying to we're trying to balance it out but um is there is there anything that you are concerned about in terms of that imran i, I wonder about commodities because there was so yeah, much i'm glad you brought that up yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because i have noticed something in commodities like with the china reopen trade you've had a big influx back into metals so mm -hmm. copper, gold have gone ballistic, right, to some extent. And positioning has really gone that way. So you've seen a lot of specs come back in, a lot of hedge fund buying in that space. It's still got room to get back to the levels that we saw maybe a year or two ago. But um, CTAs, have also trend-following funds, have also piled back into metals. They're way longer metals on a relative basis than they are in energy. Um, technicals, the momentum in metals is kind of diverging. That's a signal that I often look for. So things like RSI, they're, they're not making as high peaks as they were. They're making lower peaks whilst prices are still pushing a little bit higher. And that's called a momentum divergence. And then lastly, skew in metals has flipped. So you, you had skew for puts last year, generally. You didn't have it in silver, but you had it in gold, you had it in copper, gold miners, things like that. You're starting to see now pretty consistently cool skew in gold, in copper, and mm. even gold miners have started to move. So, so it does look like we're getting, at least in the short term, we're getting late in that rally of metals where we probably need some sort of correction. I doubt it's going to be a huge one because I think the, the buy the dip mentality for this space is going to remain. And I think China is pr a pretty strong tailwind and it probably has some legs still to go given that they, they tend to front load their stimulus. Um, there's probably a lot of institutional money that wasn't allowed to touch China has got to come into China and take that market higher. And so mm, that was That's kind a of, great point, the institutional yeah. money, because it was considered uninvestable for a bit, wasn't completely, it? Completely, yeah. completely. So, so you've had all the fast money pile back into China, but the slow moving money is still waiting for dips to buy, right? And I think that may well be the case in some of the commodities as well, because they've, they've had such a quick move out the gates this year, that it's only really the fast money that can react that fast, you yeah. know? Um, so, so I think, yeah, buy the dips is fine, but here, here you've got great opportunities to put on hedges in things like copper, gold, uh, via risk reversals, which is one of the trades that I talk about in the course, um, is one of my favorite trades actually, because it's just a really good way to risk manage your holdings. We're gonna take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
It, it is. We were remarking amongst ourselves uh, that consistently as we did a sort of turn of the year asking people about their outlook or, you know, Q1, either one, gold kept coming up again and again. And obviously from some people who closely follow commodities, but even people who weren't particularly, you know, a special specialist in commodities, everyone seemed to like gold. I just did, I just taped an interview that we're going to do for the upside, Ralph, uh, all about gold with Rick Rule, who we know is a long time, uh, you know, a commodity uh, investor, and follower, and um, so it is. It is funny that, that so so this is a, an instance where you want to have a strategy short term because it looks a little tired, but then you want to have a medium term because you do think people will come in and buy the dips, right? Yeah. So I think I think it's an easy trade, right? You, you own it from a physical perspective. Like obviously, to go and buy it here if you haven't owned any is probably not the best tactical entry point, right? But like I think majority of people who run a long term portfolio have got some gold in it, right? Whether, whether they've got 5%, 10%, 20%, who knows? I know I've got some, right? So I've had that for a while. It's it's having a good move. I, that gold is staying in the portfolio. That, that gold is going nowhere, right, for a long, long time. But in the super short term, it looks tactically very overbought and there's not a single person that you can find who's bearish gold, right? Which says to me, it's probably got a pullback coming, yeah. right? How, how steep, I don't know. But do you see what I mean? So, so the way yes. I think about it is I've got a structural position. I want to have, I want to keep it. But if I get taken out of half my position, another 10% higher mm. in the next two months, I can live with that. Right. Yeah. And that, that gives me ammunition to sell call options. Right. And then with the premium I receive for those call options, then I'll buy some put options. And if the market does correct, then I'll make some money. I'll be able to monetize the option trade. I'll just go back to my holding, which is staying in the book forever. Mm, makes sense. Uh, question from uh, Global Macro or Q Global Macro. Any views on Euro USD? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard fade at the moment, actually. Um, generally, I've been bearish Euro, um, but just, you know, sitting in Europe, you tend to be bearish Euro. I mean, <laughs> European economic surprises have been really beating the hell out of the US, right? So that's been a big driver of the outperformance in both the equity market in Europe and also in the currency. And obviously the, the very, it's, it's given them that, that rope to be very hawkish basically, right? Um, so, so it could have some legs to run here, right? I wouldn't be surprised if it pops its head above 110. Um, I thought the Italian bond market was gonna prevent it from you know, doing too much, but for now that seems to be quite well behaved. So I'd be watching for those little stress points like, oh, when BTPs are blowing out now, you know, it, and, and and therefore they're going to have to calm down. But right now, I would say, yeah, it's probably a bit dangerous to fade it. I mean, optionality is not too expensive. It's, it's on an eight handle if you look at, at the money vol on euro. So if you wanted a punt, you could probably buy some outright puts. But selling calls is probably not that safe anymore uh, because I don't really know where the top comes in in this thing. Mm. Also a question about the VIX. Is it at a temporary low? Hmm. So this is an interesting one. I, I think personally, the biggest driver of cross asset volatility last year was was rates vol, and and we just had the fastest rate hike cycle we've seen in well forever, right? Decades, if not forever. So this year, you know, rates okay, they might keep going a bit higher. They might go to five. They might push. Who knows? They might even go to five and a half. But they're not going to seven eight, right? And on the downside. 
same sort of story, right? They, unless we get a real monster sell-off in risk assets because growth data just falls off a cliff, right? We're priced for a couple of cuts by the end of the year, right? Something like that. So rates vol in theory should be much lower this year, which if that filters through to cross-asset volatility means we're going to see probably lower equity vol as well, right? So that's my suspicion, which is why, whereas we had an 18 floor on the VIX last year, I wouldn't be surprised if that floor gets taken out in Q1 if we've got this China reflation impulse that takes markets higher and we're not ready to roll over yet in equities because we're kind of believing that the Fed pivot's coming. And, mm -hmm. and we, until we get to middle of the year when the pivot is due to happen, that's when that's when the rubber's going to meet the road. And it's like, are we getting our pivot or not? Right. Um, so I would argue we've got a window of two or three months where the market can be in Goldilocks and kind of eke out some more gains. And um, and in that, you could easily see the VIX down to 15, 16. Which is sort of extraordinary because just a couple of months ago, people were sort of convinced something was going to break, something big. Is that off the table now? No, it's probably just pushed back a couple of quarters, right? I, I don't think it's off the table at all, right? It's just that I think people were surprised at how resilient the data has actually ended up being. and And to say, you know, people an actual recession of a material consequence is getting pushed back, right? The labor market hasn't cracked yet, right? Mm -hmm. It's when the labor market cracks and people are thinking it's another three to six months away that then we see, you know, we look, in, we look into Powell's eyes and we see whether he's actually going to, you know, hold true to his projections of 5.1 terminal rates till the end of the year, right? And a lot of people don't believe he will, um, but that's 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 what we're going to have to evaluate in the face of a labor market that is materially slowing down. So interesting. So my takeaway from this conversation, first of all, is I've got to power through that entire course. And and there is a lot that the options market can tell us, especially when we sort of, you know, have a tendency to connect it to a headline. There's obviously a lot going behind the scenes that's feeding into this action. So, so grateful that you're able to explain it in a way that we can all understand and sort of motivate us to, to make sure we wrap our head around this. But it also sounds like from a market's perspective, we're in this sort of window now for the next few months where you have the opportunity to make some moves and make some money. Things might be relatively calm. You're going to see people sort of adjusting what they thought, but it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a whole lot of action. It just may be in the second half, as you just said there, when we're going to get a little bit of a clearer picture. But for the moment, that sort of soft landing, slight readjustment, if things were getting sold off and maybe um, for things that had to run up, a slight pullback, there's going to be a little settling in. And then maybe we're off to the races again, mid-year, second half. Sounds, sounds about right. Sounds about right. <laughs> if we only had a crystal ball. Um, Imran, thank you so much. This was really, really educational. I really enjoyed the conversation. I've been seeing all these tweets about some of this activity in the option market, and I think you really helped us understand what's going on. So, so appreciate you. Pleasure. Pleasure speaking to you, Maggie. Look forward Fantastic. to doing it again. Great stuff. And we are, as we close out, we'll be back tomorrow, of course, same time. Uh, and as we close out, we have a little bit more information. If you want to dig in and go through that eight-part course, it'll fill you in on what to expect. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. The whole point is to try and make options more accessible, more approachable, and more intuitive.
Why are you doing these trades? What are you trying to achieve? That's what I've always done from when I first started Optimus Insight. Made people realize that they're not as risky as they're made out to be. In fact, they kind of help you manage your risk if you understand how to use them correctly. I'm going to try and lay it out in those layman's terms and, and make it much more understandable than I think the, the average option course out there does. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.